This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I'm joined today by Julia Spencer, Associate Vice President for Global Vaccines, Public Policy, Partnerships, and Government Affairs at Merck, also known as Merck, Sharp, and Dome outside the United States and Canada. I'm also joined by Margaret Cornelius, Deputy Director of Private Sector Programs at ThinkWell in Washington, D.C., Together, Julia and Margaret have recently published an article arguing that financing for routine vaccines must be part of the G20's pandemic response agenda. So, you know, normally these days we might expect to hear that financing for COVID-19 vaccines should be part of or be a greater part of the G20's pandemic response. But routine immunizations, particularly those for children like the measles vaccine or diphtheria tetanus pertussis series, aren't always part of those pandemic preparedness and response discussions. So we're here today to talk about those routine immunizations, outbreaks of vaccine-preventable disease, and why pandemic preparedness, pandemic planning, and pandemic response aren't really complete unless they are taking those routine immunizations into account. Margaret and Julia, welcome to Pandemic Planet. So Julia, I want to I'm going to start with you. As you know, there are a number of different proposals out there for financing pandemic preparedness and response. Even before COVID-19, we had the World Bank Pandemic Emergency Financing Facility. Now the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response has recommended an international pandemic financing facility funded, I think in the amount of like 5 to 10 billion per year over 10 to 15 years. Over the summer, the G20's high-level independent panel urged the establishment of a financial intermediary fund at the World Bank. And at the COVID-19 summit here in Washington a few weeks ago, the Biden administration also proposed a fund to be hosted at the bank and committed an initial $250 million to it with a promise to, to ask Congress for additional funds as well. Now, a lot of the discussion about these funds, however they're ultimately named or described, you know, a lot of this discussion really revolves around research and development, stockpiling antiviral drugs, stockpiling, you know, other kinds of therapeutics, laboratory capabilities, and disease surveillance. But you and Margaret have recently argued that financing for routine immunizations needs to be part of the picture. So before we even get to the financing question, let's start with routine immunizations. What are they? What do you mean when you talk about routine immunizations as opposed to immunization campaigns, for example? And why should routine immunizations be considered an element of global health security and pandemic preparedness activities? So thank you so much, Catherine. The role of vaccination in protecting health and the economy has never been clearer than it is in this moment. A lot is being asked of vaccination. It literally has the world on its shoulders to help prevent serious illness, 
hospitalizations, and death from COVID-19, to protect our essential workers, to help economies open back up and grow, and to halt the emergence of new variants, curb transmission, and ultimately end to this pandemic. But what's important to underscore as we look at new pandemic preparedness proposals is that they must address the investment needed to upgrade and strengthen immunization systems and infrastructure so that they can do two things at the same time in a health emergency. Continue to deliver routine vaccination services, like when you go to your doctor's office or you take your child to a clinic to get protected from vaccine-preventable diseases, and to assure high vaccination coverage rates for those vaccines. And on top of that, have the surge capacity to deliver pandemic vaccines at the same time. And for that, we need resilient, modern immunization programs. Many of the proposals today are heavily focused on one of these challenges, namely the distribution of pandemic vaccines. But we need equal emphasis on the other major challenge, and that will take better planning and the ability for systems to surge. And both of these things take ongoing human and financial resources. So it sounds like part of what you're talking about is just, you know, the importance of continuity of access to services, continuity of care, but also that maintaining, you know, a level of being able to consistently provide those immunization services can also prepare for the potential of a crisis when, when it comes along. So either to deliver those pandemic vaccines or just to continue that care as, as, um, as a crisis unfolds. So Margaret, let me turn to you. You know, over the last few decades, several initiatives have supported lower and middle income countries in accessing vaccines at affordable prices. You know, there's Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, of course, which has worked with the lowest income countries since the early 2000s. But there's also the revolving fund for vaccines at PAHO, the, Man the Pan American Health Organization, uh, which has been negotiating one low price for vaccines for all member countries in the region. And, and I think that even goes back to the 1970s. Um, you know, at the same time, there are global, global strategies like the Global Vaccine Action Plan and Immunization Agenda 2030, which have emphasized the importance of ensuring equitable access you know, globally um, for children uh, and across the life course. So really, you know, looking at, at the broad range of, of vaccines available. Now, before the pandemic, there had been some progress, um, some good progress in expanding immunization coverage in many regions. But despite all of these new and, and ongoing financing and procurement mechanisms, as well as, you know, these new global strategies, investments in some ways were still inadequate. So can you talk about some of the different kinds of expenses that go into building strong immunization programs and explain why, you know, kind of despite all of these different global efforts, the financing for, you know, ensuring that kind of continuity of care just really hasn't been enough. Sure. And thanks, Catherine. And thanks, Julia. It's really a privilege to be here with both of you today. You know, I mean, there's no doubt that these global health initiatives that you mentioned, like Gavi, have really changed the game by focusing on affordability and creating predictable, healthy vaccine markets. It, it just is remarkable what these investments have done and, and the global community really should be, you know, praising itself for all of this work that's gone in over the past 20 years. I think it's also important to note that the Immunization Agenda 2030 does include goals that are focused on securing and increasing domestic funding for immunization programs 
especially along among countries that are transitioning from Gavi or, or other support from external sources for immunization programs. You know, we talk about a lot about aid and, and sort of what's going in and, and where that money is coming from. But I think we also really need to recognize and, and applaud the tremendous investment that many of these so-called recipient governments have made in getting their systems ready to deliver those vaccines. And even in the, the sort of stark reality that COVID has for us right now, the fact that there are systems that are have been delivering vaccines and have been working really hard to get vaccines out. I mean, we're not starting from scratch. And I think it's important to recognize that even countries that are very constrained from a resourcing standpoint have made an amazing investment in shoring up their own systems. But of course, more work is always needed. I think we also have to think about immunization in the broader context of health systems, where we know that investment in immunization programs and the infrastructure that goes into immunizations is not solely dedicated to immunization, right? A dollar that's spent on an immunization program is also going to have a multiplier effect on broader primary health care. And so when we think about immunization investment, it's also an investment in, in primary care, which is critical to achieving and securing population health across the board. Catherine, you asked about, you know, what kind of expenses or investments really comprise an immunization program. And I tend to think about, you know, data systems, surveillance, lab capacity, supply chains that are responsive and flexible, training and sustaining a health workforce that's nimble and able to adapt and evolve. And I think we're seeing that play out in real time with a lot of the COVID response that's happening around the world. I mean, the truth is, if you train a nurse, you're not just training her to give a shot, right? You're training her to counsel a woman about family planning, healthy foods, what to watch for if a kid is wheezing. I've seen firsthand, you know, the impact that investments in community health workers and community health can have, whether it's rural Ethiopia or urban Indianapolis. And I think when we think about immunization programs, also thinking about the face of those programs, which are usually those frontline health workers and the investments that we make in them, that's an investment in immunization, but it's also an investment in poverty reduction and development and healthcare for all, which is a hugely important agenda, of course, for ThinkWell and many organizations that, uh, that we work with. I mean, I think we also need to look at the indicators that immunization brings. I mean, we know that countries have that have good immunization coverage also tend to have good indicators for child health, for nutrition, women's health, and other basic metrics of population health and development. These things are all linked. So when we talk about investing in immunization programs, when we look at the value that those programs deliver, both from like a performance standpoint and from a societal benefit standpoint, we really see that those investments do pay off. We also know that immunization is a high return and comparatively low cost investment for governments to make. Prevention, it saves lives, but it also saves resources for health systems and social systems across the board. So it's really not just a health investment, it's also a social investment and frankly, an economic development investment. And we also see huge equity impact when we have strong and widely distributed immunization programs. I mean, for me, it can be very confusing when the logic seems so clear Yet we know that investment in immunization is not what we want it to be, given how much benefit it does provide. Even before the pandemic, most vaccination programs were operating on what was, you know, shoestring or very paltry budgets. For example, only 11% of public spending on health was for prevention in low and middle income countries, and only 3% in OECD countries, which are, you know, comparatively pretty rich countries. And we see in Europe, vaccination makes up under half a percent of spending on health. 
I mean, we know in the U.S., right, where almost 20% of our GDP is spent on health, and yet such a small amount actually goes to prevention and public health. So when we look at immunization as sort of an extension of, of a public health system, you're looking at pretty small budgets relative to what countries are spending on health. And we know that that money needs to come up in order for those programs to be strengthened and to innovate and adapt to the needs over time. Thanks, Margaret. So I want to stay on this topic of you know, equitable distribution and, and the role of, of um, health workers in particular in, in delivering vaccines. You know, the WHO UNICEF national immunization coverage data released this July, I guess this past July, showed a significant dip in uh, the DTP3 coverage in 2020, with nearly 24 million children missing one or all doses of that vaccine and, you know, really representing a loss of 10 years or more of progress in increasing that immunization coverage globally. And you know, I think the, the numbers for measles vaccine, rotavirus vaccine, and HPV coverage in particular had decreased as well. And at the same time, you know, we know that a lot of health workers who had been trained to deliver those vaccines have now either been diverted to COVID-19 response or to giving COVID-19 shots, you know, really um, moved over to, to that vaccine program. Or, you know, in other cases, you know, have just left the health workforce altogether because of burnout or loss of, of family members in COVID and, and, you know, many of those, those other factors. And so, you know, I just wanted to ask, ask both of you, let me, let me start back with Margaret and, and then turn to Julia. You know, what do you see as some of the other reasons for the particularly concerning drops in immunization coverage over the course of the pandemic, you know, what we've seen since, you know, March of 2020 or so. It's so critical. And I think that, um, you know, it's not just immunization, right? We're, we're seeing major disruptions in, in essential services from maternal care to routine child health visits, immunization, even, you know, chronic disease management, which is, is super scary where you have people who are missing important screenings or, not getting access to the care they need in order to ma- to manage their illnesses. And, and we do not know what impact that's going to have on, on shorter and, and more medium-term health indicators. You know, I think the UNICEF data is critical and, and an inc- and super important call to action. And I think it is a reminder of how truly fragile these systems are. You know, COVID, of course, is, is unprecedented. I mean, it's had a major impact. It's continuing to really, really affect a lot of health systems around the world. But I think we also have over-indexed on how much we can ask health workers to do. I mean, we knew this from even um, basic services and delivery where you keep adding on things for, you know, relatively kind of low-trained, low-paid workers to do. And there's frankly a breaking point where they just, they can't do it all. And that to me is an indicator of a need to sort of look at primary health care, not just as something that is a low-level concern or that frontline health workers should be doing, but something that the entire system needs to be prioritizing and flexing to adapt to as the needs of a population uh, evolve. And I think the pandemic has showed us that in in very painful ways. I mean, another thing that we want to look at is, while on the one hand, these systems, you know, are very fragile, they're also, they, they can be quite resilient. And so one of the things that's been really interesting to me, at least, is how even in resource-constrained settings like India or, or even some urban areas of Africa where just the private sector has come in with a lot of innovation around telehealth and sort of getting people access to information and helping kind of 
improve points of contacts. You know, you don't necessarily have to go to the clinic. The worker can come to you or, you know, even in Bangladesh, we saw a major impact on health workers going out even in the face of COVID and having major ability to connect with people in the homes and give them the things they need. So the, the care delivery model that we sort of have, which is a bit outdated maybe, and sort of historically driven and also very driven by kind of the structure of the public system, I think there's a lot of potential for us to look at service delivery in very different ways and really bring services to where people are or what's most convenient to them, as opposed to inviting or, or asking people to come in to avail themselves of a particular service. And that's been something that's been kind of exciting for me as we look at immunization and think about how we might be able to get routine immunizations out to more points of delivery or to frankly be more proactive in how we reach out to families and, and make sure that they're coming to get what they need, but that we're also making it available to them based on their preferences and schedules. And for anybody who has kids, I mean, even in a, in a pretty rich country like the United States, it's tough to keep track of like which appointments your kids need. I mean, I, I admit to myself, like I haven't scheduled my own kids well child visits, even though they all need vaccines. And so I think we also have to kind of remember that people are really busy. It's a really challenging time. And the ease with which people get access to services is, is really our challenge to solve, not, not the individual patients or the families. So, yeah, that's this whole revolution in some ways in, in, you know, access to digital communications and innovations to improve service delivery really opens a lot of opportunities in, in many places. You know, so, Julia, I know you're looking at some of these issues on a global scale, both in terms of, you know, the existing vaccines that are in place, but also some of those in the pipeline and, you know, really kind of trying to anticipate beyond COVID-19, where there might be an opportunities for introducing new products um, over the next, you know, the short to, to medium term. And so as you look at this challenging landscape on the one hand with drops in immunization coverage, but also some of these opportunities that Margaret has outlined in terms of being able to you know, some of the innovations that have happened in terms of service delivery, in terms of, you know, reaching people directly uh, at the community level through innovative, you know, approaches to, to bringing COVID vaccines to to communities and, and to people's houses and that kind of thing. You know, I guess two questions. I mean, one, you know, what are some of the kind of, I guess, geographic areas, you know, where you see the greatest challenges in terms of existing immunization coverage issues, but also what do you see as some of the greatest opportunities for improving services, improving access to and knowledge about vaccines? And where can some of these innovations that we've seen during the, the COVID crisis perhaps you know, be, be best applied? That's a great set of questions, and I'll try to take them in order, make sure I get through all of them. But just to frame the, I think my response is there are really three things that we need to be thinking about right now in terms of service delivery. First is getting uptake back up for routine vaccination coverage. So ensuring that, you know, the new babies that are born today or the children that need a booster, you know, tomorrow are coming back into the health system and getting those vaccinations. In addition, there are a number of children, adolescents, and adults who missed out on vaccination during the period when vaccinations were stopped or slowed. 
and they need to be caught up on recommended vaccines. And then as you were talking about in your questions, zooming forward to the fact that there are a number of other diseases that vaccines could potentially prevent or mitigate that are in the pipeline um, of many companies like Merck. And so how do you ensure that immunization systems can deploy those vaccines when they become available? And you know the, the systems are stretched incredibly, but they are also built for a type of immunization program that I think we're not seeing today. So how do you innovate and think differently about not only how to fund them and make sure that there's sustainable financing, but that you ask the question of sustainable financing for what? And, and as I said earlier, we need to look at that from a systems perspective, that there are data systems that enable us to understand what types of infectious diseases could be potential outbreak threats in particular communities. I think there are very different ways to try to strengthen those. Over the years in my government work, I think we, we did it a certain way and we tried to build a very strong, very comprehensive surveillance system for everything in certain places. And then there were no data systems in other places. But we've seen a lot of leapfrogging through IT and AI and apps where you're getting you know, real time on the ground assessment in very, very remote parts of the world. So how do we marry that expertise that you have in those very traditional kind of data system models to these kinds of innovations that can enable us to learn faster and to do more in more places? I think to, to Margaret's point about innovation in vaccinators. So, you know, the traditional model in high income countries has been you go to a physician office and you get vaccinated. And, you know, one of the models that I think has worked quite effectively in lower resource settings is the use of community health workers. Well, now we're seeing in those better resource countries that that kind of idea of a community health worker that could be an extension to the healthcare practitioner workforce to do routine immunization is just as important because so many people need to be vaccinated. So learning from each other, trying to look at all of the various places that we can vaccinate people and the different kinds of vaccinators that could be brought to bear to address the capacity challenges we have, not just today, but as we think about new vaccines for things like um, you know, other pediatric and adult vaccine preventable diseases, that we do need to think differently. And I think there are a lot of lessons that are being learned on the ground right now in COVID that could really be useful in um, ensuring that the trajectory of routine immunization and recovery goes in the right direction versus continuing to have it go in the wrong direction. I want to stay on this theme of some of the innovations that have come out of COVID and their relevance for immunizations for, for a minute. So both of you have touched on you know, the, the gathering and analysis of data in real time, even in the resource settings where we, we didn't really see that you know, before the pandemic. But now, of course, we're all familiar with all these different trackers that, that have the, the data kind of updated multiple times a day. And then, of course, you know, there's also the development of the vaccines, which has happened in a really unprecedented scale. And that has really brought governments and the private sector and academia together in, in maybe not new partnerships, but, you know, very uh, close collaborative partnerships. 
and really also involve outreach and engagement in kind of a new way, or at least a more intensified way with communities themselves. And I wanted to ask, you know, each of you to reflect, you know, on you know this kind of model of public-private partnerships that has emerged during the pandemic. And is this like a different kind of model? Is it just kind of a, a culmination of a number of years of, of work? And, you know, what, as you, as you look ahead, I mean, how do you see the engagement of multiple sectors? Uh, you, know, you have corporate entities, non-governmental groups, civil society, government, and, and community. How do you see those kind of working together or working in partnership to, you know, advance access to some of these newer technologies or, or newer approaches, whether around vaccine access or data systems uh, for immunizations and, and other programs like that. Margaret, maybe I can start with you. It's a great question. And, you know, public-private partnerships is a, is a big term, and it, it's been around, and they've, they've existed in many different ways and forms, you know, all over the world. And, and so it's not like a new thing. I would say from my own perspective, what's been really striking to me is that it's not so much that the the sort of advocacy community or the global health community is is sort of saying public private partnerships are the way forward it's that governments have really started to kind of recognize that they they need to be able to effectively engage with the private sector in order to reach people with what they want them to have so just sort of like a public push campaign is not going to be sufficient to get you know, vaccine coverage rates up for, for COVID or to get people to do the things that they need to do in order to keep themselves and their families safe. And so I think a lot of these uh, relatively sort of artificial divisions between, you know, well, this is what the public sector does and this is what the private sector does. I think a lot of those have been kind of pushed to the side and maybe because of just the crisis and, and sort of the speed with which things needed to move there was much more openness in many government settings to kind of invite the public sector in. And indeed, the, the excuse me, the private sector. And the private sector was kind of ready to help, you know, in very different ways and very creative ways. And that's super exciting. And um, and hopefully, you know, the good things that have been learned about, about those models can be sustained. I mean, whether it's a lot of the telehealth things that we've seen or, you know, particularly in the U.S., a lot of uh, tech companies have tried to come in and and solve some of these um, breakdowns, right? Whether it's transportation or access to information or what have you. I think the challenge is that on the public sector side, you, you really just don't have the flexibility that many private companies have, nor do you have the urgency to innovate because if you innovate, you know, you're, you're competitive. You know, the public sector is not exactly competing with anyone but itself. And so I think that trying to kind of find ways for the private, the public sector to be more nimble and responsive and proactive. You know, that's where, particularly for immunization budgets and, and to, to address the things that Julia was talking about, you know, creating sort of system, whole system approaches, you know, being more nimble about forecasting, being more proactive about the innovations that are needed, whether it's in health worker training or data systems. I think the, the public sector has a lot to learn from the private sector, and hopefully, you know, some of those models will be informative for how we build the immunization systems and programs that we want for the future, and that the public sector can really be in a, a leadership position to to demand those kinds of things and the private sector can come in with the solutions, you know, to help the public sector achieve its goals. 
I mean, Julie has worked in, in both the public sector and private sector in the U.S., and so I'm sure she has a lot to add on this. But I think that there's a, a ton to be learned. And indeed, because of the speed that was required during this emergency response period, I mean, we've seen just like massive breakthroughs in, in things that would have taken up, you know, 10 or 15 years to achieve. You know, they've been achieved in a year just because everybody was all in um, all the time. Julia, I can't wait to hear your reactions to this question. Yeah, it's such a fantastic question and and fully agree with everything that you've said, Margaret. And you know, when I when I worked in government, the last the last administration was the Obama administration and there was actually a huge initiative trying to bring in private sector innovation ideas through bringing in people from the private sector to to work with government. And one of the interesting lessons learned in that, which I think also is playing out in COVID, is that there's a lot of expertise and there are a lot of products and services that are being used, developed and used in other sectors that can be brought to bear for the challenge that you have. And so whether that is, you know, in the remotest parts of rural African countries, they still manage to get sodas into those villages. So how, what can you learn from the logistics and the supply chain and transport of those companies? Or it's things like, you know, forecasting in other sectors and, and how can governments use that kind of knowledge to forecast better. But what we saw when I was in government and what, what I'm seeing now is that bringing people in who don't know your particular challenge or your sector or your program, they don't know what they don't know, and you don't know what they don't know necessarily either. So there has to be a lot of just conversation about this is what we do, this is what our needs are, tell us what you do, tell us what you bring, what your limitations, what your constraints are, but what you can offer in this kind of a partnership. And I think that kind of open and honest dialogue about the leverage points and the assets, but also the parameters of partnership so that everybody is bringing their best thing to the table. And you've kind of covered some of the, the challenging points that I think can lead to you know, less than successful partnerships is critically important. Now that's not easy to do when you're in the middle of an emergency. So in my mind, the more that we can do when we get on the other side of this global emergency to try to make those linkages stronger, to do more to increase the understanding across sectors and across different kinds of leverage points, the better we're going to be when we end up in an emergency and we have to start picking up the phone and calling each other. And I have seen and heard so many remarkable stories of the private sector pitching in in a lot of different ways outside of the pharmaceutical industry, where they have been able to quickly innovate and fill a gap in the supply chain or fill a gap in how do you market information in a health literate way to people so that they will you know, make a decision to be vaccinated. And you know, it's kind of like putting your arms around the world to think about how you actually glean those best practices and, and bring them to bear. But I think that's exactly what we need to do as we really try to learn the lessons of this pandemic and how we can come in with better understanding of what every sector could bring to address these large global problems 
And there also has to be a willingness to listen and a willingness to open the doors and open the windows and let the other sectors in to the work that needs to be done. Speaking of global conversations and efforts to wrap our arms around the current challenges uh, and the, the crisis of the day, in a couple of weeks at the end of October, uh, world leaders will be gathering to discuss some of the various pandemic preparedness and response financing mechanisms as part of you know, discussion at the G20 Rome Summit. And so as you think about the various proposals that are out there and what is really needed to you know, take all of these, some of these lessons, you know, around public private engagement, you know, how different sector, how we've come together in this crisis to respond, but where some of the existing gaps are, and in particular, what's needed to effectively incorporate routine immunizations into pandemic preparedness activities. How much funding do you think will be needed and who should provide it? How are you thinking about those questions? Julia, let me start with you. So I think it's really important to start with how domestic resources or outside resources are applied to immunization programs. So you know this is a really important consideration. And as we've done work with um, with groups like Thinkwell in many places around the world, it's really obvious that a lot of people don't understand even how their immunization funds flow. And, and then when we think about linking that with global and national security activities within domestic agendas, as well as supranationally, it can get very complex. And you know, doing some good landscaping and analysis and documentation of where immunization financing is, um, where it's going, that we can see that there can and there needs to be more done to use existing resources more efficiently. So, you know, I always start conversations with everything that you need to do takes money. And I think we always need more resources in certain places to fill gaps. But we also can look at how we can utilize and leverage existing resources more efficient, more efficiently and, um, and to then mobilize the needed resources on top of that. And I, you know, we've all been in this game long enough to know that a lot of times somebody will throw out a very, very large number and you don't really know what that financing is going for. So in some ways you have to do a, a top down and bottom up exercise so that you're ensuring that you have enough funding from enough um, domestic as well as supranational sources for this work, but at the same time, ensuring that you're investing in the right things and that you're utilizing the existing um, you know, programs and other supports that can be brought to bear on this. So thank you, Julia. Margaret, yeah, over to you. I mean, how much, how much funding is needed? Who should provide it? And are you optimistic that uh, these issues will really be taken up uh, in Rome in a couple of weeks? Sure, thanks. And I, I don't want to disappoint everyone. It feels like a, a little bit of a setup. Uh, I don't have the, the trillion dollar number, or the magical number, because it doesn't exist, right? You, you, could, you could mobilize 5 billion, you could mobilize 1 billion, uh, and you'd always need more. One of the things that I always find surprising in, not surprising, but just sort of interesting in these conversations is that, you know, the, the health people are trying to convince the, the health people. And not really that you need to convince the health people. It's that you need to convince the, the, the people who hold the purse strings or who are really the decision makers. And 
when we talk to ministers of health, you know, we, we don't have to do much convincing. But when we talk to ministers of finance, you need to come at them in a way that it's going to be resonant with the things that they're solving for. Because oftentimes it feels like a zero sum game where the, the minister of finance says, OK, you know, fine. So do you want me to take books away from the schools? Do you want me to take, you know, roads away from the rural areas? I have all these priorities that I need to fund. So convince me that, you know, this is the best investment. And in in countries of any income level, but I think in rich countries in particular, where the health budgets are not going down, or at least health expenditures are not going down, and people are living longer, uh, they are requiring much more intensive care, higher levels of care, which tend to be more expensive. The case to be made to a minister of finance is, hey, look, you need to prevent everything you can as early as you can so that you're not having to pay for things down the road for people who are going to be sicker and need much more care for things that we can't prevent or may not be able to prevent. And so this notion of of prevention versus curative is somewhat somewhat of a false dichotomy where if you are able to to say to a minister of finance, you know, if you fully fund this immunization budget today, you are going to be saving, you know, huge amounts of resources um, for the people that you're trying to care for today, as well as the people who you're trying to care for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And I think that we have so much evidence, right, to, to tell us about, you know, how cost effective um, vaccines really are. I think we're also really learning clearly from COVID vaccine rollout where we absolutely wanted to vaccinate those who were most most vulnerable and who were going to require the most care and not only saving lives, but saving health system resources as being a major driver of those decisions in terms of how the vaccines were initially rolled out, at least in, in rich countries. You know, so I think about kind of the G20 and I think about, you know, these global calls. And, and for me, it's sort of like, well, why as a global community would we not fully commit to upping our game when it comes to to funding immunization across the life course, you know, for for diseases that impact adults as long as as well as kids, you know, as a parent, I don't want my kid getting sick with a vaccine preventable disease, but kids are usually pretty healthy and, and bounce back pretty quickly. It's actually my aging parents that I'm most worried about, right? They're the ones who are going to get the sickest and are going to need the most care. And, um, you know, when you think about how we talk about vaccines, either to decision makers or to the average voter, you know, conveying this sense of, of savings, both of lives and, and health, but also future wealth is just a tremendously powerful argument to make um, as decision makers are thinking about how to make trade-offs within the public sector budget. Maybe I'll just jump in um, because I think you made an incredible point that has been kind of in the back of my mind during this whole conversation, Margaret, and that is there's a tension between the long-term impact of the decisions that are going to be made over the next six to 12 months and the short-term political gains. And I think, you know, if, if I would, if I were still a staffer, you know, to a, to a senior government official, I would say, sometimes you have to make the difficult decision for the legacy that you're going to leave. And even though you might not see the, all of the benefits accrue to those very, very challenging decisions in the period that you're in office or that you're leading an agency, recognizing that there is a legacy that is going to be laid down either because of action or because of inaction. And the people that come 
after us that are having these podcasts in 15, 20 years are going to be looking back on those decisions and making an assessment about whether the kind of the long-term legacy was really what was in the forefront of people's minds as they were deliberating in rooms like the G20. So in some ways, it's kind of back to the issues, Julia, that you started out talking about. I mean, on the one hand, routine immunizations are important in pandemic pre- prevention, planning, and, and response. You, know, you want to ensure continuity of care in a crisis, but also you don't want there to be other outbreaks while you have you know, a pandemic raging. And at the same time, the preparedness or the, the ability to uh, deliver vaccines also serves for the delivery of pandemic-related vaccines when, when those are, are available. And as you all have, have really described as well, the benefits go far beyond just the prevention of disease, but really strengthen the overall health system and contribute to, you know, a much larger uh, set of uh, social uh, social benefits, you know, as well as, you know, what we've seen in, over the course of the pandemic, really the opportunity to engage, you know, new forms of communication and um, interaction as well. So I want to thank you, Julia Spencer and Margaret Cornelius, for joining me today. And I know we'll all have our eyes on the deliberations uh, in Rome in a couple of weeks and hope that uh, at least some of these issues are taken up and discussed and that we'll see some some momentum uh, in the near and longer term and and some of these legacies, uh, Julia, that, that you're talking about as well. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks a lot. It was great to talk to you both. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 